0: Good morning, my name is Anna Simmons, and today's scripture reading is from John chapter 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then jumping to verse 44. Verse 44 then Jesus, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears the words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world." The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, can you imagine being the employee at Blockbuster who ultimately said no to Netflix? (laughs) Do you know this story? This is one of my favorite stories. I think about this like all the time. The year is 2000, which was 23 years ago, by the way, if you can do that math. Blockbuster at this point is still a business behemoth, right? They're still valued in the multiple billions of dollars and meanwhile, Netflix is this plucky little startup. They're still simply mailing people DVDs at this juncture. They're years away from launching their streaming service. Their valuation is only 50 million bucks. And then they get their big break, a pitch meeting with the mighty Blockbuster. I think about it from Netflix's perspective, right? This is a chance to be purchased by the movie store giant, this titan within the industry, to ensure that they they make it out of the gauntlet that is launching and sustaining a startup. And here's the punchline in the story. Blockbuster said, no, turn Netflix down cold. Can you believe that? And we all know how the rest of this story played out, right? Here's a really uh, precise image of how this happened, (laughs) right? (laughs) Netflix launches their streaming services in 2007. Streaming takes off. Blockbuster can't make the pivot and goes bankrupt in 2010, Netflix, on the other hand, even with a difficult year in their rearview mirror, Netflix is currently valued at 149 billion dollars, and Blockbuster pa- passed on a chance to purchase them for 50 million. So I ask again, can you imagine being the employee at Blockbuster who ultimately said no to Netflix? I mean, talk about regret, right? I'm thinking that maybe a person or two, maybe three, four, five, or six, lost their jobs over that decision. But a story like this makes me wonder about us. Regret. Now, it's a bit different when we personalize it, but I think the question still holds some power. What might we regret saying no to? What might we regret saying no to? What might we regret saying no to? We're a few weeks back into studying the Gospel of John, which is a theological biography of the life of Jesus. And helpfully, Jesus, or John himself, is abundantly clear about his core purpose for writing this book. He doesn't leave any questions. Near the end, in John chapter 20, he writes this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'll sum it up for us this way. The Apostle John is begging us, desperately begging us, don't say no to Jesus. Don't say no to Jesus. Now our passage for this morning isn't John 20, we'll get there eventually, but our passage for this morning is what Anna read for us, uh, the last part of John chapter 12. And this passage is, as you probably saw, as you've been looking at it, a strong warning passage. This is actually Jesus' last public address in the Gospel of John, which maybe seems extraordinary because there's still nine, ten more chapters to go, but everything else from this point forward is either a private address to his closest disciples or is part of the passion narrative, his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And fair warning, this public address doesn't go that well. Most people do say no to Jesus. And there are reasons why, of course. This passage illuminates them, and if we are humbly open to it, then I believe that this passage can serve as an incredible benefit to us. Because we have this passage now, right? While there is still time. It'd be like if I had a time machine and was able to zap back into the Blockbuster boardroom right when they're about to give that final no to Netflix. Don't do it! I'd yell like at the top of my lungs, right? You're going to regret this. Don't say no. I don't have a time machine, and I can't serve Blockbuster in that way. But friends, I believe that if we let it, this passage can serve us in that way related to Jesus. Don't say no to him. This passage is shouting at us. You'll regret it if you do. So let's dive in and explore together. And the first idea, the first reason why some people then, and why we shouldn't, but why some people then said no to Jesus is this. Don't say no to Jesus even though his claims are offensive. Don't say no to Jesus even though his claims are offensive. The verses that I chose for our scripture reading this morning illuminate the truth of the offense of Jesus' claims. In those verses, which were actually the last two verses of our passage last week, and then the final seven verses of our passage this week, here's a short rundown. That's just nine verses total, and look at the short rundown of all that Jesus claims in those verses. He implicitly says that he is the light of the world, which is something that he said very plainly and clearly a few chapters before in John 8. He claims that by believing in him, the light, is how people can become children of the light and stop walking in darkness. But even more so, he says that to believe in him is actually to believe in the one who sent him, meaning God the Father. And he doesn't stop there either. In Exodus 33, 20, God says to Moses, no one can see me and live. But then incredibly, here in John 12, Jesus says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Translated, you want to see God, which he said wasn't possible? Well, all you have to do actually is look at me and you will see the one, you will see God, the one who sent me. And then two, he claims that he does not speak by his own power and authority, but does so for God. So if you want to see God, look at me, and if you want to hear God, listen to me. And in fact, if you don't listen to me, well then, my word will be your final judge." Jesus speaks so clearly in these verses. Our ultimate destiny is determined by whether or not we believe in Jesus and believe in what he says, what he taught, his word. The verse where Jesus claims this last part is John 12, 48. I'll, I'll put that up on the screen for us. We'll look at it again. Jesus says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, oh, they have a judge, and their judge is the word that I have spoken It will judge him on the last day. I want to ask, right? Is anybody offended yet? (laughs) You can start to see it, right? Why people have rejected Jesus on the basis of what he claims. Now, some of what Jesus claims and teaches can be found on the lips of other important religious leaders throughout history. Muhammad, Siddhartha, Confucius. Even in the Old Testament, if, we're, if we think carefully about this, we'll realize that Moses is a religious leader who claims to speak for God, which is in range here of what Jesus is claiming. But ultimately, no religious leader other than Jesus would ever dare step to the level of clearly and repeatedly claiming to be God himself. That's a whole nother level. My favorite example of this within the Gospel of John comes at the end of John chapter 8. At that moment in uh, John's narrative, Jesus is in this lengthy back and forth with the religious leaders and Abraham comes up, the revered father and patriarch of the nation of Israel. And at the end of this exchange, right near the end of John chapter 8, Jesus drops the mic on the conversation. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, which sounds just like a confusing word choice from Jesus, but actually was the most intentional and offensive phrasing possible that he could have chosen. You see, Jesus is quoting Yahweh from Exodus 3. He's quoting God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Tell them that I am has sent you, God says to Moses. And in mirroring that phrasing in John 8, Jesus claims to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, if we look closely, then what we'll discover is that Jesus doesn't leave any room to come to a neutral conclusion about him. Oh, sure, Jesus is a nice guy. He's a good moral teacher. He had some interesting ideas about prayer and about loving our enemies. No, right? Like Jesus, there's no room for that with Jesus. The reality is if we're not offended, then we're not paying attention, If we're not offended, then we're not paying attention. And the question is, once we understand all that Jesus is claiming, what are we going to do about it? We can either accept Jesus and his claims or deny Jesus and his claims. We can either say yes to Jesus or we can say no to him. And church, we have to see this as well. If Jesus is right about what he is claiming, then the stakes... The stakes to our yes or our no could not be higher. That's John 12, 48 again. Our eternal destinies rest singularly on our answer to Jesus. And that is why the Apostle John includes this warning pivot passage. He doesn't want us to say no to Jesus even though his claims are offensive. Don't say no to Jesus even though his claims are offensive. Now, here's the second idea. John includes this as well. He doesn't want us to say no to Jesus even though his signs are confounding. Jesus' claims are offensive, but his signs are also confounding. Neither of those in John's mind are reasons that we ought to say no to Jesus. He wants to warn us towards a different direction. So here it is again. Don't say no to Jesus even though his signs are confounding. This is actually where our passage for this morning begins, John 12 37. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. You see, along the way during Jesus' ministry, while he was making increasingly bigger and bigger claims about himself, he was also performing increasingly incredible signs and miracles as a means to authenticate the claims. The basic patterning that we see is that the miracles and signs would intrigue and draw many people in, while the high claims and challenging teaching would offend and drive many people away. In and out, in and out, in and out. This can be observed in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, but this dynamic is especially prominent within the first half of John's gospel. In fact, chapters 2 through 11 of John's gospel are often called the book of signs, the book of signs, because of John's focus on this dynamic. And what about this word confounding, right? The signs of Jesus are confounding. I really think that is the right word to refer to this, uh, to the totality of Jesus' signs. Confounding means to surprise someone by doing something that's contrary to expectation, which sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? To surprise someone by doing something contrary to expectation. In the book of signs, there's seven signs on display. Let's run through them quickly and see if it matches with that definition of the word confounding. First, all the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding when the hosts had run out and were about to be brought great shame in an honor-shame culture. That's pretty cool, right? It's not a bad first miracle. But we have to remember that Jesus turns Jewish ritual cleansing water into wine. He takes a religious symbol of purity in a zealous culture and turns it into alcohol for a party. I don't know if you've met any like really super duper religious people, but stuff like that can confound them a little bit. Next, he he goes to temple at Passover. He makes a whip, drives out the money changers, flips over tables, pours out bags of coin, causes an incredible scene. And at the end of it, he stands up and he says, I am the true temple. He then heals a, Roman's, a Roman official's son. And remember, Rome is oppressing the Jews. He, heal, he heals an oppressor's son. Then he does another healing. He heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath in open defiance to press up against the Jewish sacred day. He feeds 5,000 people, which, again, amazing, right? The crowd tracks him down, and Jesus then tells them, if you want to live forever, if you want the bread of life, then you have to eat my flesh. He heals again on the Sabbath, this time a man born blind, and then he says to the religious leaders and authorities, well, if you think he was blind, you really should take a closer look at yourself. And finally, he raised Lazarus from the dead, primarily to show that he too was going to need to die in order to be truly the Jewish Messiah, which absolutely zero people wanted to hear and were completely and utterly confounded by that tension of a Savior, the Chosen One, the Lord and King of the universe, having to die. Seven incredible signs that ultimately had the cumulative effect of getting Jesus killed. Getting Jesus killed, they were so confounding. They were so surprising. They they defied expectations. They were brilliant and magnetic too, and they did draw people to Him, but ultimately confounding. Confounding ultimately too different than what people expected. Because again, John 12, 37 makes it clear they were not enough. Did you hear the tone uh, from John? Even though Jesus had done so many signs, right? It's like an exasperated parent. Like Jesus just kept doing signs and kept doing signs and kept doing signs and they were not enough. Even with so many signs, they did not believe. And I know, again, the dynamic in our own life is a little bit different, but it does make me wonder, what signs has Jesus done in your life? What signs has Jesus done in your life, and have they, have they confounded you in some way? Were they different than what you expected? You know, I know for me, I'm, also, I'm, I'm often most confounded by the timing of Jesus' signs in my life, the timing of it. I almost always wish Jesus moved more quickly. As <laughs> Glad I'm not alone. <laughs> right? I'm not alone in that. We do all wish that Jesus often moved more quickly in our lives. And as I wait on Jesus, is anybody else this morning, like me, waiting on Jesus for some sign in their life? As I wait on him, I get frustrated, disappointed, worried. I give in to anxiety. And I'm tempted to say no to him, to turn to someone or something else to try to fix whatever I've got going on. But when I do that, I'm not heeding the Apostle John's warning. I want to heed the Apostle John's warning and I want to invite you to do the same. Don't say no to Jesus even though his signs are confounding. Don't say no to Jesus even though his signs are confounding. Next, John also wants us to see That we shouldn't say no to Jesus even though mystery abounds. Church, don't say no to Jesus even though mystery abounds. I'm drawing this idea from the middle verses of this morning's passage. And while these verses, which we'll cover here in a moment, are not easy to understand, they actually do seem to rather be central to John's overall point in this passage. So I want to look at these verses together and we need to ask God to help us understand them. This is John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40. We've seen verse 37 already. See how it sets up what comes after it. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Well, the first thing I want us to keep in mind with these verses is the Apostle John's timing in writing and his audience. His timing in writing and his audience. Writing this near the middle slash end of the first century to original readers that would have included a lot of Jews One of their key burning questions would have been, why was there such a large-scale rejection of Jesus from his own people, the nation of Israel? Now, we must be careful to say that there was not wholesale rejection of Jesus from his own people. All of the very first followers of Jesus were faithful Jews before they said yes to following Jesus. But it is also accurate to admit that there were many more G- Jewish people who did say no to Jesus, who did reject Him. And actually, if we zoom out a bit from these particular verses, we see that humans in general have a long history of rejecting God, starting all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And as we trace Israel's story throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we do see that God's chosen people specifically have a long history of rejecting of rejecting him as well. And so, in John chapter 12, the apostle is explaining that the crowd's rejection of Jesus, here it fits into that pattern that we see over and over beforehand. And as challenging as it might be for us to read that people could not believe, and the reference to the prophet Isaiah, where God hardens hearts, What we have to see is that God's sovereignty never violates human agency and responsibility. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty never violates human agency and responsibility. Rather, there is a complex and mysterious interplay between the people's choice to reject Jesus and God's sovereign control over all of it. And I don't think it's incidental either that the unbelief of the people comes first. That's what happens first. Then there is the reference, the explanation from John quoting from Isaiah, the reference to God's hardening. And I know that this doesn't resolve all the tension. I mean, again, one of the main points that I'm bringing up here is that there is mystery. Mystery abounds. And we shouldn't allow the mystery that is on display here to turn us away from Jesus. I really actually do think that's John's whole point. Don't say no to Jesus even though, yes, mystery abounds. Because again, see here with me the logical progression of how all of this develops. The crowds and religious leaders first choose to reject Jesus, and then God's blinding and hardening of their hearts ultimately leads to them to bring about Jesus' death. But we know what happens as a result of Jesus' death. It brilliantly and beautifully and wonderfully opens up a door to life For all those who choose to believe in him. So you see, church, not even unbelief can thwart God. Not even unbelief can thwart God. In fact, he uses it to accomplish his sovereign plan. So don't say no to Jesus, even though mystery abounds. And here's one last thought on this too. John chooses to drop these verses into this point in the flow of his narrative. And again, I'll admit, these verses are challenging and they seem so fixed, so final. And in that way, they do accomplish John's purpose of serving for his original readers and for us as a strong warning. But we have to keep in mind that John is also writing about real people. Real people who were dynamic and flexible and who still had more time to possibly reverse their rejection. Do you see that? The people that John is writing about here still had more time to ultimately say yes to Jesus. There's always more nuance than we look at on first glance. I mean, just look at where this passage goes next, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now this tension is almost comical to me. Immediately after the statement of verse 39 that they could not believe, John's like almost, it seems like he's almost contradicting himself, right? But what he's raising, that there's, there's mystery and tension. They could not believe. Then John says, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. Because again, mystery abounds. Now, John admits that this belief from the authorities got tripped up along the way. And that leads us to our next idea. Don't don't say no to Jesus, even though the glory of man is alluring. Don't say no to Jesus, even though the glory of man is alluring. And friends, I want to be open and transparent to admit to you that these verses, John 12, verses 42 and 43, these are haunting verses to me haunting verses to me. I want to read them again and I want to invite you to slow down in them with me, especially on the final clause in these verses. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And again, I'll lead the way in openly admitting that the glory of man is alluring to me. It's enticing to me. It does draw me in like a, like a moth to flame. This is where my heart naturally turns. But we must remember what we so thoroughly discussed during last week's sermon. Jesus' call upon us is absolute In order to find our lives in Him, we must first lose our lives. Jesus wants it all. Everything. There is no halfway with Jesus. To put it into the language of this week's sermon, we can't say maybe to Jesus. Or we can't say mostly to Jesus, or 75%, or even 99% to Jesus. Either it's a full yes or a full no. And as we saw last week, there is a cost to saying yes to Jesus. He says, count the cost before saying yes to following me. We will experience loss. And these verses in our passage this morning, they illustrate a specific cost that a specific group of people would have had to pay to say yes to Jesus. The authorities, they would have had to pay the cost of certain rejection from the synagogue which there's, was their vocational livelihood and the core heartbeat of their community. And in this moment for them, that cost seemed too high to bear. They gave in to the allure of the glory of man. But church, it is significant that John declares here that these authorities believed in Jesus. This is significant. Because belief in the Gospel of John is more than intellectual agreement with a particular idea. It most often is bound up with a whole life commitment and dedication to Jesus. Belief in John is a full-throated yes to following Jesus. Now, that's quite plainly not the case here with these authorities. But again, who knows what might have changed as the events of the coming days from this moment unfolded. You know, maybe we'll be worshiping with these authorities, or with some of these authorities, or even with just one of these authorities in heaven forevermore. Maybe we will. And wouldn't that be a delight? We must remember that ultimately it's not our job to pass judgment on how others respond to Jesus. Ultimately, it's not our job to pass judgment on how others respond to Jesus. Rather, your job and my job Our job is to focus quite singularly on what our response to Jesus is going to be. Here it is in question form. What are you going to say to Jesus? What are you going to say to Jesus? Yes? Yes or no? Final idea, briefly as we close. Here it is. Don't say no to Jesus because he did not come to say no to you. Don't say no to Jesus because he did not come to say no to you. I know that overall this is a harder passage. A a challenging few verses and, and this difficult final public address from Jesus. Strong warning, hard truths to swallow. And warning passages are important. They are necessary. We need them. Our hearts need them. But they can be tough. And so within warning passages, I'm grateful for Islands of Refuge... that language, islands of refuge. And within this passage, there is a beautiful island of refuge. You may have noticed it as Enna was so beautifully reading Scripture for us. The island of refuge that exists within this passage in uh, verse 47b. Allow this island of refuge to minister deeply to your soul this morning. Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We can't miss this. When Jesus sums up why he came to this world, he says, you may say no to me, but I don't say no to you. I didn't come to judge, to condemn, to shame, to shun, or to lecture. No, I came to save. So church, don't say no to Jesus, because he did not come to say no to you. Rather, he came to say yes to you and to me. Rather, he came to save. Our final song during the service this morning is gonna be a new one. It's really simple. It's really, really easy to learn. It's called Jesus Strong and Kind. Jesus Strong and Kind. We've been doing, in the Brandis household, we've been doing this song with our boys really regularly. They love it. It's a great, uh, again, really simple, easy for them to pick up. Listen to it on the way to school when I'm putting Ethan to bed. Ethan, two years old, he can sing it, Jesus Strong and Kind And I'm excited to sing this song with you this morning. The first two verses are all about Jesus' invitations to to us to come to Him, which we're going to express, we're going to answer His call to come to Him as we prepare to come to the Lord's table here in a moment. Those are the first two verses. But it's the final verse that I want to highlight here as we close this sermon. Here it is. It's simple, it's powerful, it's beautiful. Jesus said, If I am lost... He will come to me. And He showed me on that cross, He will come to me. Jesus, our church, Jesus came to you. He came to me. He came to say yes and not no. So what will our response be? Don't say no to Jesus. He didn't come to say no to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that when Jesus came, He came not to say no, but to say yes. Thank you, Father, that even though there are corners of our heart where unbelief persists, we have time and we have the benefit of these warning passages to stand in front of us and to confront us with the question of what are we going to say to Jesus? Are we going to say yes? Are we going to say no? And there's lots of reasons, both ones we covered this morning and otherwise, why we might be tempted to say no to Jesus, but that way only lies death. And in fact, the only pathway to life is saying yes to Jesus. And so, Father, please help us by the power of your Spirit to say yes to Jesus today and every day. And as we prepare to come to uh, his table, may that be a response of his invitations that he gives us to come to him. So I pray all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen.